Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. I'm here with Steve Walsh. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the Royal Arsenal Woolwich. Now this is a podcast, Steve, that celebrates the qualities and the contributions made by South London. Absolutely. And as much as it pains me to say it, the most successful football club in London did come from south of the river. As a Spurs fan, inherently I hate Arsenal. Yes, you do. It's a rule. But, A, I do recognise their achievements. And B, the Arsenal we're talking about today are the pre-North London Arsenal, before the iniquities started. <laughs> before they became an issue for you, wasn't it? It was a simpler time, you know. They were a wonderful transpontine football club. <laughs> so in a moment, we'll go into the area of Woolwich, the dock, the uh, Royal Artillery. But maybe if we get Arsenal out of the way. Yeah. You need yeah. to past it, Fer- It's a sort of therapy for me. Yeah, let's clear it, move on. I mean, this is this virtually be my local football team if they were still there. And, you know... I'm sure you've still got a soft spot for him if you look deep down enough in the... Better dead than red. <laughs> Do you, and I, I need to just divert this for a second, uh, so you still now hate Arsenal more than Chelsea? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I you know don't, that's wrong, I don't... Though, don't you? You know that Chelsea are much worse than Arsenal. No, but it's not about that, is it? No, I know. But you know, sort of like, so logically... You know that Chelsea are worse than Arsenal. Yeah, it's not logic. It's not the emotionally. Way- you respond more. That's fair, isn't it? Cool. This season is a rare occasion that Tottenham and Arsenal are neck and neck for a position. So, uh, same thing happened in two thousand six. Before that, you know, it was a while. So there's a good reason to look out for Arsenal's results this year. You yeah. know, if Arsenal lose, brilliant because it means that we kind of go above them or whatever. And by the time this podcast goes out, we'll be above Arsenal, and the gap will be probably quite big. I would imagine. <laughs> and we'll- you're on the record about the gap between yourself and Arsenal, so... It's fine, man. I'll, yeah. stick, I'll stick by it. But there is just the fact that you just you have rivals in football and there's just no getting around it. I mean, I'll, it'd be nice to be a fan of a club where you, didn't, where you weren't sort of... Uh, you didn't hate someone else. You didn't sort of resent their success. You know, their, you losing was bad enough, but them winning was uh, just compounded it. But that's just the way it is. I've been to North London derbies... And one of the uh, inevitable chants. Clear off. North London is ours. North London is ours. Go back to Woolwich. I've cleaned that up. North London is ours. <laughs> I've sang that. I've sang about going back to South London and stuff. Knowing full well that I'm jumping on the train at Water Lane. <laughs> and I'll be, in South, I'll be back in South London myself within an hour and a half. <laughs> the first time you heard it, do you feel it was directed at you? It was a bit... Oh, I do sing it and kind of... Think, I hope no one catches me out. <laughs> so there will be a little bit of bias, Steve. I write my Tottenham Hotspur blog, you'llwinnothingwithyids.com and you can follow me on Twitter, at Yids, if you want to hear you know, more Arsenal criticism, <laughs> slash Tottenham loving. I've got a soft spot for Arsenal, so I'll probably counterbalance it just by sticking out and pointing out certain things about... But then I've spent most of the season telling Arsenal fans their team's not as bad as they think it is. Spent the first half of the season telling Arsenal fans that they definitely shouldn't sack Arsene I'm not looking for any sort of credit for that now, because it was always obvious to me that sacking Arsene like this team was never terrible. There was a time when they had no fullbacks, and they were like, we should have just signed more fullbacks. What do you want, six of each? Just yeah, in you case? can't just Madness, keep filling up your squad, can you? Crazy. 
He's done such a phenomenal job, Arsene Wenger. Wonderful, wonderful job. Yeah, he's an incredible manager. Um, on, obviously, it's not a completely limited budget. It kind of, no. it is. They get a bit of publicity about how little he spent, but I mean, the wages are double what uh, we paid for a long time. They were anyway. But yeah, he's you know he's he's sort of built that new stadium almost, and he yeah, absolutely never sack Arsene Wenger. That's yeah. what I say, and that's not me going yeah never sack him because we'd love to have him there because he's useless. It's not that at all. In December, Arsenal celebrated their 125th anniversary. In 1886, they were founded as Dial Square, a name they had for two weeks. <laughs> On Christmas Day, they changed their name to the Royal Arsenal because that's what they were, or they were all workers at the Royal Arsenal. Like Similarly, you had the Royal Engineers who uh, played in early FA Cup finals. It was founded by David Danskin, Whose contribution was he bought the club's first football? Nice. Important. Vital, isn't it? Yeah. The club captain, uh, Fred Beardsley, was important. Him and Morris Bates, another founder, they came from uh, Nottingham Forest and brought the kits with them. Red and white? Well, red. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe they had white shorts, but they didn't have the uh, kind of iconic white sleeves until later on when uh, they wanted to distinguish themselves from other teams in red. Like in the forest, for example. Yeah. But no, it's interesting that they wore red right from the start because you get plenty of teams where sort of you go back through the years and obviously they've worn the same colour for years and years and then you go back to like Man United in their yeah. yellow and green or Tottenham <laughs> with uh, pale blue and white halves. Yeah. Yeah, that first game they uh, beat Eastern Wanderers 6-0. They played at Plumstead Common, then the Manor Ground, then Invicta Ground in Kent and back to the uh, Manor Ground again. And those early years... They won a couple of uh, regional cups, London Cup, Kent Cup, one of them's a senior cup, I can't remember which way around. They were a pretty small potatoes team really, uh, went pro in 1891 and changed the name in 1893 to Woolwich Arsenal, uh, got promoted in 1904 to the first division and in 1906 and 1907 they were in the FA Cup semi-final but they never finished particularly high up the table. And as the decade drew to a close, attendances were sort of half what they were. Woolwich became sort of in, wasn't particularly viable as a place to have a successful football club. And in 1910, they went into voluntary liquidation. If only the story had ended there, Steve. <laughs> but that's the natural ending point, isn't it? Well, I'd always heard that at this point, when the move came along, basically there was a huge investment in the club. Well, yeah, they, um, they hadn't moved yet. But Sir Henry Norris, who owned Fulham at the time, bought the club, presumably on the cheap. And what he wanted to do was merge Fulham and Arsenal. Oh. So presumably they'd become the Fulham Gunners or something. Yeah. Um, and they would play at Fulham because Craven Cottage was, uh, was up and running at that point. But the league blocked that. Sir Henry Norris is from Kennington. So I'm not sure when he gave up his shares in Fulham, but he was at Arsenal longer. Presumably he just sort of uh, sacked uh, Fulham off fairly fairly shortly afterwards. Um, he was he made loads of money. He's from Kennington. Made loads of money in property. He was the mayor of Fulham at one point as well. A recruitment officer in the Great War. So quite a kind of figure. Grand Deacon of the United Grand Lodge of England. Ah, you know, yeah. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> at the same time, in Chelsea... Or just round the corner from Fulham, you've got the Stamford Bridge Athletic Stadium, 
and this guy Gus Mears thinks he should get a football team in there. So he offers Sir Henry Norris um, Stamford Bridge for Fulham to play at, and he thinks the rent's too high, Norris. So he says no. So Mears decides to set up his own football club, Chelsea, right? <laughs> and which is why Chelsea's only set up in 1905. So they're yeah, kind they're, of uh, new guy no history, no history. Yeah, no, of course not. <laughs> Rich man's plaything. Every part of the history, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The club that would go on to shock humanity. <laughs> Can never escape the history of Barnes. Yeah. It's oh. interesting, though, isn't it? Because like the majority of London clubs, or indeed football clubs. You know, in the North and Midlands, a lot of football clubs uh, emerge from churches. But I'd say, would be fair to say, the majority emerged from, like, workers' cooperatives. It was basically workmen's teams that formed. Like, West Ham were an ironworks team, and obviously Arsenal were... Millwall. Uh, yeah, Dockers' team. But Chelsea were born because a rich man had a, a building to fill. Interesting. <laughs> so, 1913, they go over the river. Sir Henry Norris, you know, this guy's already tried to take him to Fulham. Not a man of much integrity, right? In 1919, uh, they were obviously, as you're probably aware, Steve, they were, they finished fifth in the final season before the Great War. But the, uh, he presumably bribes the Liverpool chairman and chairman of the uh, Football League to let Arsenal in and they're sort of elected into the first uh, into the 1919-1920 season of the uh, of the Football League at Tottenham's expense is that true? yeah when you say bribe so well (laughs) that's kind of the the, the evidence that for bribing is kind of you know it's mostly speculation yeah but wait when I tell you that in 1929 10 years later he was banned for life from football for making illegal players uh, payments to players and for paying his chauffeur at the club's um, at the club's money and for keeping the money after selling the team bus (laughs) yeah I think kind of you know how did they finish fifth Tottenham finished I think Tottenham finished bottom or second bottom of the division but there was no way that Arsenal the league table was sort of uh, the the numbers in the league were uh, changed but it's well shady. Even Arsenal fans would admit it's shady. They call it controversial. <laughs> Meaning probably illegal. See, I've always heard that Arsenal, when it was in Woolwich, was bought out by... Uh, I always thought it was like a, a group of uh, wealthy businesses. Yeah, it was. This had Sammy Norris, he was the, the leader thing, of right, it. Yeah. yeah, so he's he's just sort of looking at different clubs and thinking... Well, I've like, always heard money. that it, it came down to between... Arsenal, Woolwich Arsenal and Charlton of the, the, the two clubs he was going to bring north of the river and that essentially Charlton fans saw this team move to the north river get obviously league and cup glory over the next years and always resented the fact that their team wasn't brought over there to be elevated in the same way I mean that's not how history works is it you can't sort of go no, that would have no. been us if it had just been a simple transference of uh, one club to the other yeah so now Arsenal have uh, they've been in the top flight for the last um, what 93 years is it which is a record but it's not really valid is it because they should never have been there. they should never have been put up there are they the longest team to go about yeah they are yeah I didn't know that I know I mean it's like the invincible season isn't it 3 yeah. you know, if Robert Pires hadn't died for that penalty who knows what would have happened but I think we can look back fondly on Royal Arsenal. Uh, once they moved over the river, you know, they dropped the Woolwich and they just became Arsenal Football Club. Woolwich Arsenal, Royal Arsenal, Dial Square, no problem with them. 
But they still Arsenal sort of, Football Club is another story. They still sort of kept some links with the area. When they moved to the Emirates, they uh, spoke to the uh, Royal Artillery Museum, which we visited today, and asked them if they could donate uh, a couple of cannons. Donate, yeah. Multi-million pound organisation. They can't pay for their own cannons. It's it's a loan. Because I'm assuming you can't buy uh, items out of Royal Museums. So basically, the Royal Artillery Museum picked out a couple of decent-looking cannons and and they're on essentially permanent loan at the Emirates. Knocked out a couple of uh, statues as well, didn't they? Thierry Henry. Yeah, got a statue. Tony Adams. Tony Adams got a statue? Yeah. And Herbert Chapman, those three. Chapman always had a bust, didn't he? I don't know if he ever got a statue. He's got a statue. He's got a statue, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. he always had the bust in the hallway. That was always the thing you were told about. The the, the sort of famous marble halls of uh, Highbury. This is getting boring now, Steve. Can we talk about something else? Can we talk yeah. about Art Highbury? Once they go over to North London, nothing to do with us anymore, is it? <laughs> Everything to do with you. So take me back to Anglo-Saxon times, Steve, when this all began. <laughs> in Anglo-Saxon times, uh, Woolwich was... A trading post for wool. And that's where the name Woolwich comes from. A place to trade wool. For most of its history up till the 16th century, it's just a small, anonymous Kentish town. Then, as we know from the early episode, Henry VIII is born in Greenwich. Loves the palace. He's there all the time. Decides, around 1512... That he wants to build a warship. And because he loves staying at Greenwich so much, decides to build a, a dockyard close to Greenwich uh, for this giant warship to be built so he can oversee it, essentially. And chooses Woolwich as the spot to build a Woolwich shipyard. The ship is supposed to be called Henri Grasse Adieu. Henri. Oh, we're done with the Arsenal sports team. <laughs> um, which essentially is uh, an affectation. It's French. Um, and it's Henry by the grace of God. And it's quote, uh, to, uh, you know, to do with uh, the royal prerogative, the idea that uh, divine rule, kings and queens rule by the will of God or by the grace of God. Colloquially and generally... The ship's better known as Great Harry. Because <laughs> no one's going around talking French, are they? They're not going to be going around Henri Grassadieu. It's the largest ship that's ever been built at the time that it is uh, constructed. What year is this? 1512. 1512. Um, and the, the shipyard stays after that. Henry uh, obviously keeps the shipyard going in the area. And he does produce uh, a number of other... Uh, Vessels. Naval vessels. The most famous vessel, possibly even more famous than Great Harry, well, definitely more famous than Great Harry, doesn't get launched to 1820. Uh, what would you ha- hazard a guess at another famous vessel? The Mayflower. No. The Windrush. The Titanic. That Titanic went out of Ireland, didn't it? Went out of Belfast. Windrush came from Jamaica. And yeah. the Mayflower launched from. I know we spoke about it a couple of weeks Rubber ago. Hard, Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, I, I have to guess another famous boat. Yeah. Um, this isn't a trick question when I say is it that boat from um, the speedboat from James Bond (laughs) the world is not enough Bond it's not ready (laughs) (laughs) Um, the Beagle 
Snoopy. <laughs> this isn't a comics episode. Beagle. Oh, the only beagles I know is Snoopy and that one on Mars. Be- <laughs> well, the beagle on Mars, where did its name come from? Snoopy. <laughs> HMS Beagle was the ship that Charles Darwin travelled to to get to the Galapagos Islands. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so now that you say it. It's not of... a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense now. Yeah, and that's yeah. why the beagle probe went to Mars. Because uh, it was looking for life, wasn't it? Is there life on Mars? Yeah. Bowie, Bowie, South London, bringing it back. And uh, a musical episode, so it's all there. Ian what? Wright from Woolwich. Yeah. Arsenal's top ever goal scorer at one point from Woolwich. Which is fascinating, isn't it? The idea that this player who is amongst their greatest players comes from the place they come from and then goes over the river as Arsenal has to sort of like find his destiny. Yeah, and he didn't, I mean, he didn't end up there until 80 years after they moved over the river. Yeah. Carry on, Steve. Henry, uh, as well as developing his navy, also takes uh, an interest in the emergent force of artillery on the field of battle. There's an armoury at the uh, Sion Woolwich from the 15th century, from 1471. By 1671, it's the largest storage place uh, for ordnance for the British Army. As a consequence of that, a laboratory is opened up in uh, 1695, and then later a foundry is opened in 1717. So by the early 18th century, you've got a lab where they're working on developing new forms of artillery and new methods of propulsion. You've got the foundry where they're building the cannons and the uh, munitions to go into these weapons. And you've got the arsenal itself where it's all going to be stored. So it becomes this hugely important uh, military base, essentially. As a a consequence of that, they also base a military training centre there that trains artillery officers and engineers for the army as well. We at the museum today uh, heard a fascinating story about why the foundry was moved to Woolwich. Yeah, we ended up with... um very good guide didn't we yeah this guy just uh, came over he had a badge on that said volunteer yeah well he spoke about members of his family who'd served so clearly he's someone who has an interest and passion yeah you get the impression he might have possibly been an ex-serviceman himself but maybe he was very modest and didn't want to talk talk about about or maybe he just didn't achieve very much when he was in the uh, army yeah but he was very uh, very uh, good in terms of the information he had and was you know more than happy to share with us and he told, <laughs> told an amazing story about uh, the foundry uh, when it was based in the city of London uh, in the late sort of 17th century, where there was a demonstration being given to members of parliament um, about uh, a new cannon. And they were just a key part of the process, but there was some, there was some, some damp sand, and if... Uh, this molten metal was poured in at this point. There would have been, you know, a huge explosion. And one of the engineers at the time tried to explain this to the guy that was heading up the the party of MPs and said, you know, we can't show them now because it's not the right part of the process. He went, just show them. And he went, well, we really yeah, can't. Yeah, I've got 30 MPs waiting here. Just, yeah, you know, this is embarrassing for all of us if we have to just walk away. Yeah. 
So they they uh, carry on casting, and uh, there's a huge explosion which kills 17 MPs. Amazing. And as the guy pointed out today, that's more MPs than Guy Fawkes killed. <laughs> so at that point, they realised that probably storing and developing explosives in the centre of London isn't a brilliant idea. So they basically move everything out. And it's a, it's a theme we keep coming back to on the show, isn't it? If you've got uh, a leper hospital, an asylum, a prison, munitions factory, if you've got a, a nuclear reactor that you want to train people on, you tend to stick it on the, the south bank of the river, don't you? You tend to put it across the river away from where Parliament is, away from where your rich merchants are living, away from where... I was going to say away from where your royals are living, but Henry's just at the road in uh, Greenwich Palace. He's he's fine with it. He's like, can we have all the munitions here, please? He loves it. But, yeah, the guy, we were talking, again, talking to the guy today, and he said it was uh, chosen as a spot because it wasn't heavily populated. Although, again, he told us a story that where later on they housed... Uh, all the major barracks were in London, in Woolwich, and they had 80,000 troops barracked in one place until a percussion bomb was dropped on the barracks. Hmm. And they realised that probably having everyone in one house is a bit risky. So they split up at that point. But yeah, it does seem to be a thing where if you want to have something that's liable to blow up or uh, you know spread the plague around, stick it, stick it in Woolwich, isn't it? It's going to be fine. Eventually, as they disperse, uh, particularly the, the loss of the, of the barracks in the area, means that the area economically uh, suffers, as tends to happen with uh, barrack towns where the army moves out. The, a, a very specific economy tends to develop in the town, um, and then as the troops disperse, the spending power disperses, and the area there's nothing else to really draw people there it's not it's never been a, a hugely popular residential area it's never been hugely popular industrially apart from the specific military uses um the council tries various things over the years to sort of regenerate the area um the most you know significant thing that happens in the sort of middle part of the 20th century uh which is of, of local interest to where we are recording there as well is uh, the last tram uh starts in Woolwich. Finishes at Elephant Castle. Well, I've read... There's two different trams. Uh, there's two different trams. This one finished at New Two Cross. different last trams. <laughs> no, I All saw a video trams. at the Mediatek, right? And it was a big... This is this is London's last tram. Right. Right, and it was like on video, man. It's like past film. Yeah, and it was on like... Blu-ray. It pulled up at the Elephant Castle. And there everyone was like, hurrah for buses. <laughs> um, well, talking of things that are captured on film, um, the council comes up with a grand scheme in 1961 where they uh, build an auto-stacker in Woolwich. Have you heard of an auto-stacker? No. It's pretty much how it sounds. Stacks um, on stacks on stacks. They spent £100,000 in 1961, which is no small amount of money, on an automated car park. And the idea well, was... you put your car in and it goes... You, you put your car onto a platform, and through a series of conveyor belts and lifts, it is stacked on top of the other cars. You're given a key, and then later on when you need to collect your car, you put the key in, and your car is then removed through the same series of conveyor belts and lifts back down to ground level. And now all car parks are like that, aren't they? 
Well, well it, now no car parks are like that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of go, well, in 1961 we had that technology. Why did it not catch on? And you'd imagine a part of that would be uh, the opening ceremony where uh, Princess Margaret comes to open. Is that the one who was always... Uh, yeah. That's the boozer? Yeah. Um, she she comes to Woolwich and opens the auto stacker. Um, the first car goes in and the auto stacker immediately breaks down. So the car... <laughs> <laughs> I've read a quote uh, where it said the car had to be manhandled into place. Oh, no. And you're like, that's not even... Do a test first. Yeah, just make sure. The thing... What I would say about that, Steve, is that cars are on wheels you know? yeah so there's yeah. no need to make the car park move around no. the car is there it's almost like they can get up and park into spaces themselves the auto sacker after it's uh inglorious beginnings never works and they try and persevere for a year but it becomes obvious that it's only really working about 25 percent of the time the rest of the time it's just uh Embarrassing. People aren't using it because they're worried that the cars... And rightly so, their cars are going to get trapped in this thing and not get out again. Um, so a year later, having spent £100,000 on the auto stacker, the council... They purchase an auto de-stacker. <laughs> they, they close it down and demolish it at the cost of another £60,000. There is... Well, they, haven't bought, uh, they haven't built any more since. So they've obviously no, they've learned their lesson. There is... Uh, I found it. We'll put it on the website. I found a wonderful Pafé news film clip where uh, it's, and it's your classic Pafé voiceover, but it's quite funny because they've clearly edited, because it's, it's Princess Margaret there, and it is, they talk about it, it's clearly the first day of the auto stacker, but they've clearly edited it together, so all you see is a car go into this thing, yeah. and it's all, and it's like, well, this is good news for the yeah. future, and it, it's not, it never works. After that, arguably, the only other claim to any sort of prominence that Woolwich can have is in 1974 when and this is pretty major the first McDonald's in the United Kingdom opens up on Woolwich High Street because Woolwich is determined by the McDonald's Corporation to be the most average place in Britain (laughs) and they mean that in the nicest possible way they're like if you want to get a read on what your average Brit is up to go to Woolwich. So they do. And uh, McDonald's, it's fair to say, becomes quite a hit in the UK. Yeah, did they, they, they open more? One or two more, yeah, yeah. There's still a few. Yeah, there's it? one in the Wharf Road, I think. Yeah. And I think there's a couple up the West End. There's there's one in Hull, I think. We didn't eat in McDonald's today, Steve, after the uh, visit to the museum. I saw a sign for it, and I was almost going to say, let's go to McDonald's, but your dad was with us, and also it would be a spoiler for... Uh... My dad not a McDonald's fan. Is he not? I don't know. I don't know. We went to the Arsenal Gate Calf. Um, you had a breakfast, didn't you? Medium breakfast. I had steak and kidney pudding, vegetables and uh, potatoes. Was it hot? Extraordinarily hot. <laughs> it's volcanic, it, it? It was white hot. <laughs> It was decent there, it's alright man. It was nice, yeah. Reasonably priced. My dad bought it for us, right? You know what that means, don't you? Mention. He's the de facto sponsor. Oh, of course. So, if you like reading about uh, the history of uh, amateur football in South London, specifically Dulwich Hamlet, there's nothing I know about Tootin and Mitchum. <laughs> the Hamlet Historian com, or if you're at Champion Hill, seek him out. He's a greying 
five foot seven. So quite, I did that. quite a dashy man. Your words, Steve. <laughs> That's not mine. Uh, yeah, you can get a copy for two, two fifty, something like that. New issue coming out for the final day of the season when Dalija gloriously promoted. We're probably going to go to the last home game, aren't we? That's the plan at the moment. All two, really. Yeah. I mean, two. you're drinking out of a mug, Steve, with a Dalish Hamlet badge on it. Yeah. I'm drinking out of a mug with a Dalish Hamlet badge and all the fixtures on. <laughs> Croydon Athletic cancelled. <laughs> Due to uh, crime. No bankruptcy, Steve. But wasn't it like really dodgy bankruptcy? Oh, was it? Yeah. Wasn't it? Uh, haven't Croydon collapsed about four times every time because someone's embezzled them? Croydon Athletic cannot escape their history of violence. <laughs> I, I thought it was quite interesting in the Arsenal Gate Cafe that you're in a cafe that has the name that has gone on to become a football club's name, is very close to the Valley, Charlton Athletic's ground, and the man who served us was wearing... Well, uh, supposedly it was a Manchester United t-shirt, but I don't think it had the word United on it. It just it said just... Manchester and Old Trafford. It was just one, it's one of those t-shirts that you see being sold... So when you go to a gig and there's someone outside selling their version of a Wu-Tang t-shirt mm. and it's basically a logo they bind on this morning and like really badly uh, screen printed faces of band members and it's a t-shirt you'll never wear and it's got a logo typeface you've never seen before. So much information on the t-shirt but yeah. not the word United anyway. <laughs> Getting off the bus today, Woolwich is another one of those places that you know, I've never been there before. Why am I going to Woolwich? And it had a feeling that you get in these places. It's the difference between sort of South London, Bermondsey, Southwark, by the river, which is very much old London, isn't it? You know, we were in sort of the borough on Monday and you walk down Newington Causeway and you can feel the history of the place. And it's got this nice, I love a city that's on top of me. I like tight little silly little roads that don't really work in the modern world well you're tapping clearly... into the uh, themes of uh, between the billboards aren't you well th- this is it isn't I it I mean yeah. Lee Palmer is a uh, graphic novel that explores uh, the urban landscape available from com, also from Gosh Comics so you know but yeah that's what I like I like places like the borough I like places like the elephant where it's got this sort of claustrophobia to it. But I don't feel it was claustrophobia. It's just like it's a nice enveloping. It's sort of like a, an embrace of the city. It's it, almost organic the way it's yeah. uh, kind of part. Um, unlike the Surrey Docks area. That's the thing. Surrey Docks was another one. And, and Woolwich as well. I was there today and it just feels... Even going through sort of Black... I mean, Blackheath's another place that I never really get on with. And, and Charlton. Where there's so much open space. It doesn't feel like a city, but it doesn't feel like a suburb either. It doesn't feel like it's the country. It's just like flat open space with some buildings around. And then you get to Woolwich, and the actual sort of strip itself along the high street and whatnot is it's very open, but there's stuff around. And like even walking to the museum, you're walking along, and there's a crossrail development. There's but they're next to it. But there's like a high street. Crossroad about, and in the middle, there's what's essentially a dual carriageway. It's just a road that seems far too big. So everything just seems far too big and open to feel like a proper city. It just seems mm. very. Yeah, maybe give it eighty years, and it might be more up to your liking, Steve. It just feels, yeah, it feels orbital, doesn't it? It feels like it's on the outskirts, and it is. So that makes sense. But it just, I always just feel uh, very out of place there. But and even walking along to the armory, um, we were talking about the developments going on there. They're building these new flats, and it just seemed very. It's not very false, the whole thing. 
there were so many showrooms and it just felt like I was being sold Yeah, it's all developments, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, Woolwich has got a, a, say, a reputation. I mean, it's just one of those places that you just, you, you, you know is not that nice. Yeah. But it's, it's like anywhere, it's got to the point where there's just so many people live in, in the world and in London specifically that you just, everything just fills up, doesn't it? I mean, at a point, you know, we're in Newcross now, it's kind of, when I was a kid, it used to seem far out, and I imagine it was probably wasn't that expensive <laughs> to live here. But now, I mean, it's like we're still in zone two or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just like everything's just filling up because there's just so many people there. But I like New Cross. I like, and it's the, it's the yeah. No, I know. I'm just saying. The the geometry the pop, of the place there's a sort of population anything. explosion in these, even in these far out places. Everything sort of gets closer together. Plus, if you've got Crossrail, get the train to. I mean, I used to really like working in Walkstones, Oxford Street, and it got knocked down to make way for Crossrail which yeah. is fine I mean I'm not suggesting that my you know 22 and a half hour a week job is more important <laughs> than um, national infrastructure well, it's like the point that Owen made the other day talking about development he was like you live in a city it changes and you have to adapt to that ch-ch-ch-changes local boy again so but I say yeah so I was just walking through Woolwich feeling uh, sort of out of place not really enjoying it um and then in, it wasn't in the museum, it was in the Heritage Centre next door. There's a great quote up on the wall uh, that I felt summarised my feeling towards the area. It wasn't attributed the quote, and I think let's keep it honest, because for me, I feel it speaks for every person who goes to Woolwich. That's not fair, but it certainly speaks uh, for me. Um, Woolwich is marvellous, colossal, amazing, glorious, but emphatically, it is not beautiful. But like you, and it's Steve. <laughs> Glorious. Steve Walsh is colossal. Emphatically <laughs> not beautiful. <laughs> the reason for our visit was to go take a trip to the museum, which you'd think they'd be called the Royal Arsenal Museum or something like that. But it's called Firepower. I'm trying to appeal to youngsters. They've got sort of printed out um, A4 bits of paper with pictures of cannonballs they've drawn eyes on dotted around the museum as well so well, they're obviously try- they're trying desperately to sort of appeal but there's a sort of losing a little bit of dignity in doing so there's there's actually you know very nicely produced historically sourced information on the wall that's printed with a nice font at a decent size but then dotted around the place just like blue tacked to various surfaces you have to be fair I didn't see any comic sans but that was the only font I didn't see <laughs> Just people, you know, people just go nuts with fonts. Where they go, I can do anything with this. This can be green or yellow, or it can be green here and yellow here. And you're like, just because it can. And so you just end up with all these horrible fonts and clip art. And any, anything that wasn't working, there's a sign in it saying "out of action due to enemy action." Yeah. And it's like, all right, first time I thought, okay, fair enough. But that's on everything that's not working. Also, just get the stuff fixed. Also, a lot of things aren't working. And you get the feeling that once they counter that gag about enemy action, they were like, we don't really need to fix things because we've got a brilliant gag. It's not an excuse. Get things fixed. It's a bit like the um, Imperial War Museum, isn't it? But focusing solely on guns. Yeah. Which I must admit, I don't find particularly... It's just cannons, isn't it? Cannons everywhere. And this is the thing. You can't... It's very hard to get excited. They've got tanks. They've got, you know... They've got sort of... Guns and tanks, and but once you've seen one, I'm not particularly, you know, military. There was an AK-47 in a in a cabinet, and I really wanted to just hold it, man. 
Your dad got a chance to dress up as a gun and pose with a gun. Yeah, he seems to enjoy that, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that was good. But I, I thought it was interesting. I was, I was observing you around the place, and obviously because we weren't with your dad. I got the feeling it was very much like, I felt like I was like an anthropologist watching a McElroy family outing. I imagined you being sort of like eight or nine and your dad taking you to somewhere like this. And your dad's being well into it. Because he was, he was very interested in what was going on. And you were just he sort did, of like... He slowed us down. <laughs> he slowed you down because you were just trying to work your way through it as quickly as possible and get out of there. Until we got to the medals room. At yeah. which point you came alive. Well, I mean, I mean, I've, even on things I'm not particularly that knowledgeable about, I, I've got a kind of a, a eye for aesthetics. Yeah. Is that okay to say? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Like with football club crests, I could just sit there staring at them. And this in the medal room is just some really beautiful stuff, you know. Yeah. It, and the guy who was taking this round, the guy we mentioned earlier, he, he was, you know, trotting out lots of good information about what the clasps what the clasps meant and what various medals were awarded for. I mean, there's loads. Of, if I was on my own, I probably could have spent twice the amount of time and just actually read the stuff and, see, you know, well, paid more the, attention to the medals. I thought it was, it was interesting as well because you were fascinated by, as you say, the design of the medals. And all I was thinking was I really wanted to know the stories behind the things. Yeah. They told some, some, some interesting stories, you know, the guy who was awarded uh, the Victoria Cross and... Uh, the Iron Cross, and that's the thing that fascinates me—the sort of story mm. behind these things. And I think, uh, you know, that is very much a dynamic between us, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I just yeah. The way I was seeing it is, he was in a war. That's why he got those medals. He was in a war. That's why he got those medals. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I want to know the stories, I'll stick a film on. <laughs> I did manage to stump the guy though. I just there was one. There was a um, a medal that stood out. The Africa Star. Really nice medal because it's got you know as you can see on the South on the Hardcore logo which I didn't design, obviously, it's Louis Peckham's work. It's got the cross with the SLHC on it. I've kind of got a soft spot for crossed anything, crossed hammers, crossed swords, and it's that's what they got on this Africa Star. And I asked the guy what it... What it um, I was like, what was the Africa Star awarded for? He didn't know. But luckily, we had Google in our hands. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, if you served in Africa between 1940 and 1943. You got an Africa Star? Yeah. The guy told uh, a fascinating story about his own uncle served uh, during the Second World War and caught some shrapnel in his leg and was at a field hospital. And the British uh, medical officers had a look at his leg and went, there's no way this leg can survive. I'm going to amputate. Um, and then the Germans turned up uh, to capture uh, yeah. And then the German doctors turned up just in time to go, there's no need to amputate this leg. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> so, can save that. Yeah, they, they, and they did. They removed the shrapnel and leg. And he said he had trouble with his leg for the rest but of his life. But lived to his 80s. Lived to his 80s with, with the leg. So in a way, it was sort of a thing where you go, it's a remarkable thing in time of war where you go, these guys are the enemy. Thankfully, we got captured at this point because uh, it saved my leg. So, you know. Yeah, it was uh, it's a fascinating place. I mean, not all of it. A lot of it is just uh, stacks of cannons. But we also saw another active soldier wondering about. It. He'd only been in there a week. Um, he's been a soldier for twenty-seven. He said he was, didn't he? Yeah. So he's been a soldier since he was twenty-one. Tall guy, broad muscles. Um, looked every inch the soldier, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And his job was to 
plan routes for the uh, what do you call that plane? They're like drones, uh, spy drones, essentially like mini mini planes that fly uh, above battlefields to take photographs and video. Yeah, and they control below. it with an Xbox controller. You have got some guy sitting in a caravan or whatever. Yeah, this, there's a team of five of them essentially, and one person, the guy that we spoke to, was the guy who plots the course. Uh, there's another guy, and they showed the video, didn't they? There's another guy who literally launches it by throwing... They start the engine, and they just throw the plane into the air. And then someone else then uh, controls it using an Xbox controller. Yeah, we had a little chat with him. My dad was mostly talking to him. I was I was trying to avoid it, to be honest. Yeah, I felt awkward talking Yeah, it was a bit awkward, wasn't it? He was talking about what it was like being in Afghanistan. And, you know, saying sort of the negative side of it. And he, was, uh, he sort of, uh, so I just pitched him more and got it hot as well, didn't it? Yeah. He's like, you know, yeah, the heat's a problem. But I wanted to say, like, about Oliver Stone, you know, was saying on the platoon um, commentary about I was just tired all the time. And, like, more, remembers that more than anything, we just never got any sleep and it, just, like, incredibly tired on top of everything else. But I just didn't feel like I could make a movie reference. <laughs> Cheap as <laughs> it, didn't it? Yeah, talking about the guy's life, and. I do resent paying £5.30, you know, I mean, in my own country. <laughs> well, the thing that uh, struck me was just the odd numbering of the price. They probably, what probably Call happened five, is, no, they bumped up the VAT, and rather than just swallowing oh, right. the difference, they probably just bumped it up with it. Call it 5.50. Just 5.30 is a very odd number, it's sort of in between, isn't it? Just As you say, it probably is just that thing where they've gone strictly mathematical, but, you know. Young and radical methods and mathematical. Rick Ross. <laughs> Brackets. Rick Ross. If any of the football fans that have been roped into this episode are still listening, <laughs> go back and have a listen to episodes five and six. We uh, put together the all-time greatest South London eleven, and it includes Arsenal fans, Kenny Sanson and Ian Wright, and Tottenham fans. It includes uh, Scott Parker. Managed by Vic Buckingham, who played for Tottenham as well. You can go to southlandhardcore.com. On the left, top left-hand side, you've got an episode guide. So go back, have a look. We've got, you know... Loads now. Some. Stacks of choices. You can follow us on Twitter, at SLHC Podcast. Email us, southlandhardcore.gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. And comment on the episode as well. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave comments on iTunes. All those things. Tell your friends. Unless you don't like us. In which case, keep don't, it yourself. Yeah, if you don't like the show, why are you listening to it? <laughs> yeah, clear off.